You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 14th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In this third episode of our mini-series on climate research, we dive into the subject of paleoclimatology, or using the study of Earth's previous climates to understand our current climate and to project what our future climate might look like. It's an intellectually challenging study relying on biological, physical, and chemical evidence that remains from the geological past to stitch together a story about what the climate was like thousands or even millions or billions of years ago, and then to understand the implications of that story for the present. But that's just where our guest in this episode begins. Dr. Robert Kopp, a professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Rutgers University, takes a transdisciplinary approach to the subject of climate change, integrating natural sciences, social sciences, engineering, and urban planning to offer insights into the risks that climate change poses to the world's coastlines. We'll talk about the science of paleoclimate research, but we'll also discuss its policy relevance, especially the economic implications of climate change damage, with another excursion into the social cost of carbon and discount rates, because I know y'all just can't get enough of that, and how such calculations can be directly applied in formulating policies that will affect energy transition and our climate change mitigation efforts. And because I suppose we must... We'll discuss how these considerations may or may not be affected by Trump's decision to withdraw from the international climate agreement made in Paris. Then in the news segment, we'll discuss the latest news on Antarctica's Larsen Sea ice shelf, a new record low price for solar and storage in Tucson, a remarkable admission by a utility executive in San Diego, and a bold new move toward renewables in Switzerland. But first, our conversation with Bob Kopp. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Bob, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. Very briefly, what exactly is paleoclimatic research? So people who study paleoclimate, paleoclimatologists, if you will, sort of use different indicators of how the climate has changed in the past and try to interpret those indicators and then are producing data sets. Sometimes they get compared to climate models or other sources of models that we use to project the future. So they provide sort of a key source of information because in the past, you know, the Earth has experienced a much wider range of conditions than it's experienced the last hundred years. So it's sort of a good stress test for the models we use to predict the future to compare them to records we can construct of the past. So our research group does a lot of work on paleo sea level. And so that means, for instance, I have colleagues like Ben Horton, 
and Andy Kemp who go out into the field, who get sediment cores from salt marshes, who interpret the different microfossils in these sediment cores as indicators of past sea level, and they construct these sort of records of how sea level may have changed in North Carolina or Massachusetts or New Jersey over the last few thousand years. And then our group sort of figures out how you piece these records from different places together to learn something about things like global average sea level change. And then we can use that to understand the relationship between temperature changes in the past and sea level changes in the past, and maybe gain some insights into how those will relate in the future. Wow. Okay. So you're actually looking for fossils in soil cores. Well, so that's one of a very brass ways of thing to do. So there's lots of different geological indicators. A lot of the records of, say, past temperature are based on various chemical changes in, say, limestone. Some of the records are based on tiny fossils of various types of organisms. Some of them are based on the chemical compositions of those fossils. It just happens that for like the sea level records of the last few thousand years, the best records are basically the populations of these different types of microfossils. If you look at sea level records going back further in time, we might look at how high coral reefs have grown. But we also might look at things like where beaches have been deposited or where cliffs have eroded. It's a really a vast range of what we call proxies, basically meaning just something that stands in for something else. So you have some indirect recorder of temperature or sea level change or rainfall, and then the task is to figure out how that indirect recorder relates to the thing you're interested in. So how the chemical composition of limestone relates to changes in temperature and then use that to make an interpretation. So cores of salt marshes are one thing, but there's a huge program devoted to looking at sediment cores from the ocean used to reconstruct changes in things like ocean temperature and ocean circulation. Of course, there's the ice core drilling project, which from ice cores, you reconstruct changes in temperature at the poles. You can get bubbles of air that can tell you about past air changes. So it's a broad field trying to reconstruct how the climate has changed in the past from whatever we can find. That's got to be really tricky. I mean, especially since over geologic time, parts of the Earth's crust have fallen and been folded over and turned every which way upside down and vertically. I mean, it must be very difficult to piece together a geological history from these fossils. Well, again, it's not just fossils. It's chemistry. It's a lot of different things. Yeah. But certainly it, it becomes harder the further you go back in time. So we can get sea level records with sort of a few inch resolution going back a few thousand years. We can get air bubbles that tell us pretty directly about the state of the atmosphere going back 800,000 years. We can get various indirect chemical recorders of changes in carbon dioxide concentration that go back a few tens of millions of years. We have ocean sediments from which we can learn things about the changes in temperature in the ocean going back couple hundred million years. And then things really become harder and harder the further further you go back in time to the point where we want to lay say something about the climate two and a half billion years ago. We're basically trying to interpret glacial deposits that have been compressed into rocks that have been heated to some extent, although you want to go for the things that have been heated the least that have been subjected to pressure, but again, you go to the things that have been subjected to the least pressure. And so, you know, we have some form of paleoclimate going back 3 billion years, but it's certainly much, much higher quality if you're looking at the last few thousand years or even the last million years. Sure. Okay. So what can the study of sea levels and ice sheets 
in the geological past tell us about what may happen to our climate in this new Anthropocene era of warming? Well, they really provide a way of stress testing models. So, for example, 125,000 years ago was a period known as the last interglacial. So we're currently in what's called an interglacial, meaning there's New York City, where I am right now, wasn't beneath a giant ice sheet, right? The ice during interglacials of the last few million years basically means ice confined to Greenland and Antarctica. And during the last interglacial, we can reconstruct from a variety of different proxies, these indirect records, that temperature globally average was probably about one degree Celsius, about two degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than the pre-industrial temperature, so pretty similar to the way it is now. And we can figure out through work that our research group has done and some other groups, particularly people like Andrea Dudden at the University of Florida has done, that sea level was about six to nine meters, about 20 to 30 feet higher than it was at present. So that tells us that if we're going to use a model to project future sea level change, we should be able to check that model by saying, well, if it's exposed to conditions, temperature and other conditions, as they were 125,000 years ago, and you slit to run long enough so that the ice sheet equivalents, we should end up with sea level that's six to nine meters higher than today. So that's just one example I've done a lot of work on, you know, comparing past temperatures to what climate models would project if based on the carbon dioxide concentrations we and other forcings we think we had in the past. That's something else that's pretty direct use of paleoclimate data to test the models used for future projections. Gotcha. So what are the factors that actually determine future sea level rise? Well, you know, if you think about sea level, first, we should distinguish between global average sea level and local sea level, okay. because there's a lot of factors that contribute to local sea level, and that could be a whole discussion. So I'm just going to note that and then focus on global average sea level change. And there's basically two main factors that drive that. So one is the melting of ice on land. So you melt the frozen water on land, you put it in the ocean, the amount of water in the ocean goes up. The other is the change in the amount of heat stored in the ocean. If you warm the ocean, it expands. And then there's a small contributor from changes in the amount of liquid water stored on land, which humans influence through things like groundwater withdraw and dam construction. So if you look over the last quarter century or so, sea level has risen about three millimeters per year. Three millimeters per year is about an inch, maybe an inch and a quarter per decade. And of that three millimeters per year, roughly half has been driven by melting of ice on land, roughly 40% by uptake of heat in the ocean, and about 10% by groundwater withdrawal. Huh. And that ice share is growing and it's growing relatively quickly. So as we look to the future, we increasingly expect the contribution to sea level rise from particularly the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets to grow. Right now, most of the ice contribution is coming from mountain glaciers, but ice mass loss in Greenland and Antarctica is accelerating. Yeah. In fact, there's that news story yesterday about a, another big chunk of the Antarctic ice shelf about to fall off, apparently, with a big old crack that grew 11 miles in the last couple of days or whatever it was. Right. Ice shelves are floating ice. So when they break off, they don't directly affect sea level very much because for sea level to rise, you have to take ice from the land and put it in the ocean. Right. But they do have a significant effect on how quickly 
ice can flow from the land into the ocean because they sort of as a what's called a buttressing effect, right? They sort of push up against the ice on the continent. And if we look at some of the models used to project future changes in ice sheets, when you start to incorporate into those models physical processes like rapid collapse of ice shelves and like the instability of ice cliffs, we're starting to see pathways that are physically plausible, physically meaningful, that can get us to a meter or three feet contribution to global sea level rise from Antarctica alone in this century. So Mm -hmm. over the last few years, this work has made us realize that some of the high levels of global average sea level rise, two meters, which would be about six, almost seven feet and higher, you know, we don't know how probable those are, but we think they're more probable under a high emissions future. And we can tell you, you know, if you were to tell me that sea level was going to rise seven feet, I would tell you the physics that would get you there. But we don't know enough about the physics to say how likely it is. Interesting. Okay. So clearly, in addition to this melting ice leading to sea level rise, there's also feedback loops involved here, right? Well, in fact, the reason why there's these big contributions from melting ice, that is, in fact, has a lot to do with feedback loops. So there are feedback processes that basically cause once the ice starts retreating, more of the ice is exposed to warm water in the ocean, which allows it to retreat faster. And so that's an example of a positive feedback loop, a very important one, most likely. Mm. You know, there are also potential positive feedback loops in the carbon cycle. So, for instance, if you warm the planet, you know, in some projections, that might eventually stress the Amazon rainforest to the point where it starts holding less carbon. And so that would be an example of a carbon one. You've probably heard some discussion about methane hydrates on the seafloor and permafrost, you know, whether those all are positive feedbacks that amplify the amount of warming. It is important when we think about positive feedback to distinguish between a positive feedback, which is just something that amplifies its own cause and a runaway positive feedback. So most positive feedbacks are not runaway feedbacks. They amplify warming. In fact, the whole entire climate system is driven by positive feedbacks. If there were no positive feedbacks, then doubling the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would probably cause about 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming. With positive feedbacks in the climate system, not including some of these carbon feedbacks, we think that number is closer to about three degrees Celsius per CO2 warming. Wow. Because the feedback effect. Because, yeah, it's just the core physics. Like when you, you know, the most simple positive feedbacks, like when you put more heat into the planet, you increase the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. Water vapor is good at trapping heat, so it causes more warming, right? The whole climate system is really a network of positive and negative feedbacks. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. 
So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The 110-mile-long rift in Antarctica's Larsen Sea ice shelf grew 11 miles in the last week of May. Only 8 miles of connected ice remains before the berg, roughly the size of Delaware, separates from the shelf and falls into the Southern Ocean. This would destabilize the ice shelf and accelerate the march of ice behind the segment toward the ocean. In what might be one of the most horrific paradoxes of all time, this news was announced within the same day that Trump announced his decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Accord. Item 2. Tucson Electric Power has signed a 20-year power purchase agreement for a solar plus storage system at an all-in cost under 4.5 cents per kilowatt hour after the federal investment tax credit. The solar portion of the project is reportedly under 3 cents. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.